We're going to be diving into the book of Ephesians for the near future. I've scheduled it out. I don't have an exact time on it, but it's probably going to be around four months. We are going to take our time, go through the book of Ephesians, kind of paragraph by paragraph, really, really study this book. So I'm going to ask that you do as a congregation, even as we're going through on Sunday mornings, preaching through the book of Ephesians, I'm going to ask that you all do three things to prepare your hearts to learn alongside this sermon series as we go through it. So three things. Are you ready? The first thing, I'm going to encourage each one of you to read the book of Ephesians through once every week. It sounds like a lot, but it's really that. It's really not. Ephesians is six chapters. You can read one each day of the week with a day to spare. Maybe you take Sundays off or Saturdays off or just you know, give yourself a cheat day somewhere in the middle. Uh, but you can read it through. You can, if you want to, you can read a chapter a day, read it every week. If you want to, you can read it through in one go. That's how they would have heard it originally. It would have been read out loud to the church all in one go. So maybe you just want to take Saturday morning, uh, you know, pour your cup of coffee and just read through the book of Ephesians. But whatever you do, I'm going to encourage each one of you to dive into this book. And if you're going to commit to that, if you're going to do that, I'm going to encourage each one of you vary what you do a little bit. Read the book of Ephesians in maybe a different translation every week. Maybe you start with the NIV for the first few weeks then you switch to the King James, then you go to the ESV. Uh, for those of you who have internet, you can go to BibleGateway.com and actually just, there's a ton of free translations on there for your use. Maybe if you're feeling really adventurous, you can try reading it out loud to someone or asking a friend to read it out loud to you. If you have a smartphone, you can use the Bible app. You can get a lot of, uh, a lot of translations come with free audio that you can just listen to the Bible. But whatever you do, however you decide to do this, I'm going to encourage each one of you to dive into the book of Ephesians and really make an effort to study it, at least on that level, for the next few months. We're going to take a while to go through this, but Ephesians is a really rich book, and we're not going to have even close to the amount of time to go through it to uncover every little thing that's in there. So it will be better for you as a congregation, you will learn more on Sunday mornings if you immerse yourself in the book of Ephesians throughout the week. So that's the first thing. I'm going to encourage you to read, every, read the book of Ephesians once a week. The second thing, there's a website called The Bible Project, um, and they do short videos that are previews to each book of the Bible. And if you don't have internet, if you're not computer literate, like I get it, feel free to skip this one. But for those of you who are, I would encourage you to go online, maybe just search in YouTube, The Bible Project Ephesians. You can go to our Facebook page, and I posted it to Facebook, uh, so you can see the link to that video. It's nine minutes. They do a really good job of showing you just an overview of the book. So as we dive into Ephesians, as you're reading it, watch that video once, maybe watch it a couple times, but they do a really good job of showing the overall story of the book of Ephesians in just a few minutes, and there's a lot of art that they do, and it looks really cool, and I would highly recommend that. So the first thing is to read it. The second thing is to watch the Bible Project's video, and again, that's only nine minutes. The third thing that I'm going to recommend that you do, and at the risk of sounding cliche or trite, 
uh, I'm, I'm going to encourage every single one of you to pray through the book of Ephesians as we study it. As we look through Ephesians, there's going to be some things that really resonate with us. We say, yes, we agree with that. Yes, we do really, really well at doing that thing that Paul commands the Ephesians to do. But there's going to be other things that we look at, and maybe we don't do so well with that. We're going to be encouraged as we go through the book of Ephesians. But we're also going to be convicted. We're also going to be challenged. So as we study this book, as you read through it, as you maybe watch a video to prepare you for it, take some time to pray that God will use this study, that God will use this book of the Bible to bless us as a church and to bless you individually. And on that note, will you pray with me as we dive in? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a holy, good God. You did not sit in heaven and hide your face from us, Lord, but you came down to this earth. Lord, you give us your word so that we can know your will for our lives. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to encourage us, to convict us. Bless us this morning by the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. We're going to start but just by looking at the first two verses of Ephesians. We're not going to go this slowly through the entire thing, but hear these words as I read them from Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I will freely admit that this sermon this morning is going to look a little bit different. And, you know, I, I get it if some of you are a little bit hesitant to dive into this. It's going to sound a little bit more like a lecture. It's going to be a little more information-based than it is sermon-based. And I don't necessarily like to do that. I normally like to have everything accessible and have a nice solid application at the end. But there's going to be a little bit of information. And I debated whether or not we should do this. I debated, you know, having everybody you know, do something else, um, you know, go to a certain resource for all the background. But I really do want to spend some time looking at the book of Ephesians from a historical perspective. And there's a reason for that. There's a tendency in Western Christianity to think that the books of the Bible have come to us, maybe as, you know, they've just descended out of heaven, and this is, this is God's word for us, and we read it, and we forget about the fact that it's rooted in a historical context. The book of Ephesians was written, yes, it is God's word, but it was written by a human being. It was written during a specific time. It was written to other human beings. And even though Ephesians is the word of God, in other books of the Bible, say 1 Kings, Genesis, Revelation, even though they are all the word of God, they look different. They have different forms. That's because they were written by human beings to other human beings for a specific reason. The book of Ephesians, as you can see on the screen, was written by Paul the Apostle. You may know a lot about Paul the Apostle, but even if you don't, here's just a few things that you should know about him. Paul lived just after the time of Christ. Right? We just had 2019. We count our years from Christ's birth approximately, probably wasn't born in year one, 
So this is about 2,019 years ago that Jesus was born. Jesus lived for about 33 years. Paul ministered right after that. So this is well after everything in the Old Testament. You know, the time of the kings, King David, Abraham, Moses, all of that is behind us. This all takes place in the first century of in the first century, the first hundred years of you know, the AD calendar that we reckon. Paul ministered right after the time of Jesus. He was a contemporary. We don't have a record that Paul met Jesus during his earthly ministry, but they would have been contemporaries. Maybe they knew of each other when they were living on earth, when they were, you know, when Jesus was ministering on earth. So Paul lived just after the time of Christ. Paul was a Pharisee. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you've probably heard a lot about the Pharisees. And most of what you've heard is probably really negative, and that's, that's kind of earned. The Pharisees were very legalistic during the time of Christ. But not every Pharisee was this legalist who was trying to trap Jesus in things. Nicodemus, remember the man who came to Jesus in John chapter 3 and said, What must I do to be saved? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He followed Jesus. The Pharisees were people who really loved God's word. They really loved their Jewish identity, and they devoted their lives to studying it. Paul actually learned from one of the greatest rabbis of all time. He's mentioned just a couple times in scripture. His name is Gamaliel. But if you look up you know, Jewish history, he's one of the biggest rabbis, the most influential rabbis in the Jewish tradition. And Paul had the opportunity to learn from him. Paul was really zealous about his faith to the point where he saw Christianity, this new blooming religion that was inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and started to spread like wildfire. Paul saw that initially as a Pharisee, as a threat to the Judaism that he practiced. And so Paul devoted his life to persecuting Christians it started, by, it started at the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And Paul went on from just, from just holding the coats of the people that were throwing the stones at Stephen to actually persecuting Christians himself. And one of the most momentous occasions in the Bible is when Paul is traveling to another city. He's going from Jerusalem to Damascus up the road in order to kill, imprison, and otherwise persecute Christians when something amazing happens. Paul is radically converted on the Damascus Road. This man who had devoted his life, yes, to studying the scriptures, but also to persecuting the true church because he thought it was opposed to those scriptures. He gets confronted by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus appears to him in a bright light. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Jesus comes back and reveals himself to Paul. And he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you keep doing this. Jesus calls Paul to faith in him, and Paul experiences one of the most dramatic conversions recorded in the Bible. Paul goes from being someone who is opposed to Jesus and all of his followers to one of Jesus's most radical followers. After a period of time, after a period of learning, Paul becomes one of the central leaders of the Christian faith. He goes from being a persecutor of Christians to the apostle of the Gentiles. And this is notable, right? Because Paul was a Pharisee. He was all about being Jewish and Jewish identity. And this whole Christianity thing he was really, really suspicious of until God converted him 
and calls him and says, hey, Paul, you're going to go and spread the gospel to those who have not heard of me. You're going to go up into modern Italy, Greece, and the Balkan Peninsula, modern-day Turkey. You're going to go up into all of these lands that aren't predominantly Jewish. You're going to go to all of these Gentiles, this group of people who were afar off from me until now, and you're going to show them the gospel. This is Paul's life. This is what he did. And it was his ministry that eventually led him to write this letter to the Ephesians. This brings us to the city of Ephesus. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But the city of Ephesus was a major commercial center. Depending on who you listen to, it was either the second or third largest city in the Roman Empire, after Rome and then Athens. It was this major cultural center. It was a large, influential port city on the west coast of Asia Minor. And Ephesus was known for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, actually, was the Temple of Diana, or the Temple of Artemis. Diana and Artemis are the same person. The people of Ephesus, for years, before the Roman Empire, they worshipped this goddess. They worshipped this patron saint of the city, and they were devoted to her. There was also, and we're not super sure about this, but scripture mentions there was a local magic cult because some of the Christians who were converted in Ephesus, they burned all their magic books. So this, this city was large, it was influential, it was also pagan. It was opposed to anything that had to do with the one true God. They were devoted to idol worship. They were devoted to the worship of this fake goddess Diana and the use of magic. It was a city that was dark and that needed the gospel. I have here in the next slide, yeah, this is a picture of Ephesus. You can see here uh, there's the Italian boot, and then there's Greece, and then there's modern-day Turkey over here. That's where Ephesus is situated. Again, a major port city in the world at that time. And to the next slide, this is a poor picture. Uh, I stole this off of Wikipedia, actually, because Wikipedia's pictures are free. I think someone just snapped this with their cell phone. It's a little bit blurry. Uh, but this is a statue of Artemis. This is a statue of Diana. And this is going to, in a minute, we're going to see how this statue comes into play. But this is their local goddess. She was, as you can maybe tell, um, this is a little bit PG-13, she has a lot of breasts. She was a fertility goddess. Uh, and this was, this, was who they, this was who they worshipped. We don't know this for sure, but there may have been some kind of cult prostitution that would go along with the worship of her. Again, we're not sure on that. But this was the goddess of the city of Ephesus. This is a statue. And Paul visited Ephesus a number of times. He actually visited at least three times, maybe more. His first visit was really, really short, and it was focused on the synagogue. See, what Paul did whenever he went to a new city, he would go first to the synagogue where the Jews were meeting. Because again, he, would, he came from that Jewish background, and he said, you know, I've, I've met your Messiah. This is who he is. You should, you should worship him. Because Paul had rejected this Messiah for years. And he wanted his Jewish brothers and sisters to worship this Messiah as well. So his first visit was really short, and he just spent it at the synagogue. His second visit was actually really, really long. He spent over two years there. And instead of focusing on the synagogues, instead of focusing on the Jewish population of Ephesus, he went to all of the Gentiles, and he saw a number of conversions there. There was this great revival that broke out in this pagan city. So much so 
um, that the silversmiths in the city actually started a riot. And you can read all of Paul's interactions with the city of Ephesus. We're not going to talk about them all. But in Acts 18, 19, and 20, this entire story is kind of laid out. But this city that was so focused on the worship of this false goddess suddenly was overcome by this revival. All of these conversions started happening as people started turning to God and this church started growing. And it's actually kind of a funny story the way it worked. One of the silversmiths who made his living selling those statues of Diana, right? That was what he did. He constructed these statues and he sold these statues. He started to see that because there were more and more Christians who rejected the worship of this false goddess, his pocketbook was getting a little, little, a little, little shorter and shorter every time. He didn't quite have as much money as he used to. And this is a big deal. He said, guys, we have to do something about that. So, of course, he goes and pretends like he actually cares about the local religion. He says, guys, this new religion, they're dishonoring the temple of Diana. They're dishonoring our great goddess. He didn't actually care about that. He just wanted his money, right, because people would stop buying things. So he whips up this riot. He gets the city in an uproar. And if we want to go to the next slide... They fill up this theater. This is the actual theater that they would have been in. There was this huge riot when Paul was in the city. And everyone's chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They're all worked up in a frenzy. And Paul's about to go out there and defend himself and defend the gospel in front of them. But his friends probably wisely pull him back and they say, no, 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 no. Calm, calm down. Just let this, let this play out. And eventually, one of the local magistrates steps in and says, hey, listen, if you have an issue with this, you can take it up in court. Don't start a riot. That's not okay. But there was this conflict in the city between this local goddess Diana and the gospel that was, struck, that was growing. There were all of these conversions that happened. This is the city of Ephesus, a city that was previously under the, under the sway and authority and dominion of this pagan goddess, that was under the authority, or that was filled with maybe some local magic, as people, you know, they, they burned their books as they, as they converted to Christianity. It was a city that needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul came and spread the gospel, and revival breaks out, and the church grows to the point where it, it starts a huge conflict between the believers in Jesus Christ and the people who worshipped this false goddess. This is the situation to which Paul writes. He writes to people who have previously been in one way of life, previously worshipped false gods, previously done their own things against the God of the Bible, and who have come to worship Jesus Christ. If that was a little information overload for you, I get it. And I'm going to invite you to kind of come back in and, and focus on this part, if you will. We're not gonna, there's not a lot of scripture here for us to dive in. We've looked at Paul, we've looked at um, you know, the, the people in Ephesus. But Paul in Ephesians 1.1 writes to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. And as you, as you read through the book of Ephesians, hopefully once every week, as you listen to it, as you read it out loud, whatever it is that you do, pay attention to that phrase, in Christ Jesus. It shows up over and over and over and over in the book of Ephesians. That phrase, or variations on that phrase, 
show up 34 times in six chapters. Sometimes it looks like in our Lord, with Jesus, in him, because of him. But that phrase, that idea, is found over and over and over in the book of Ephesians and in Paul's writings. And the idea behind that is that the Ephesian believers are defined by being in Christ instead of being in the world, instead of being in Adam as they previously were. And if that's a little bit, little bit hard to understand, maybe, maybe it's not that concrete of an idea, let me tell you a story. So imagine a man, we can call him, we can call him Joe, grew up in the 1930s in the U.S., Teenager, um, had a deadbeat dad, you know, ran away when he was a kid. His mom died when he was a teenager. So he was just kind of off on his own, doing his own thing, uh, lived a life on the streets. When World War II starts, he signs up for the military, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. He says, I don't really have anything else to do, so I'm going to dive into the military. And he finds himself on the deck of an aircraft carrier, sweeping it off, and that was his life. That was how he fought in the war. He didn't really have anything going on after the war, so he, he re-ups again and gets assigned to the island of Japan for reconstruction. And he goes there, and he lives there, and he actually really falls in love with the local culture. He meets a girl. They get married. And when his tour of duty is up, he thinks to himself, I really don't have anything back home. I don't have any family to speak of. So instead of going back home with everyone else, I'm just going to stay here. I have a wife whom I love. This is a culture that's new and different, but I'm going to dive into it. And at first his accent was really bad, but it got better. At first he found the culture really, really stilted. You know, he found the lack of emotion that's sometimes shown by those in East Asian countries. He found it unusual. It's a little weird to always give respect to elders like they do. The whole bowing thing really threw him off. But he stayed. And he dove into that culture, and he lived there for decades. He had kids. They grew up. And when his kids were adults, when he became an old man, before it was too late, they, they wanted to send him back to his old country. They said, hey, we're going to pay for you to go back to the United States where you grew up. We're going to send you back to your boyhood home so you can go back and visit, so you can see how it is. And so Joe decides that he's going to do that, and he goes back to the United States. And what he finds surprises him. Everything, everything looked the same. It looked familiar. But the culture felt really, really different. See, Joe had been so involved and enmeshed with Japanese culture over the decades that he had been there that when he goes back to his homeland, when he goes back to his home country, it feels weird. Nowadays, you know, when he goes back, instead of being, instead of being confused by you know, the respect to elders that was shown in Japan, he just thought everyone was really rude. He goes back and he sees, he sees all the Amer these Americans being really, really emotional. He goes back and he's just the diet of, you know, everyone eating, everyone eating beef and everyone eating potatoes was really weird to him. He was used to rice and fish. Everyone shook hands. Everyone ate in public. It was super weird. It was off-putting to him. Even though that was the culture he grew up in, because he had spent so long in Japan, in another culture, he had become acclimated to that. So his home culture felt like a foreign culture. 
And eventually his trip to the United States ended and he went back to Japan where he lived out the rest of his years, where he finally felt at home. Being in Christ is kind of like that. Instead of dealing with physical locations, though, instead of dealing with, you know, the United States and Japan, we're talking about spiritual realities that are no less true than the physical locations we've just described. Paul's writing to the group, this group of Christians in Ephesus, and he describes them as being in Christ. They are no longer in the world. These are faithful saints. They are no longer defined by Adam's sin. Now, Paul goes on, he talks about this in the book of Romans. He doesn't lay it out as well in the book of Ephesus. But in Romans, we learn that every single human being, when we are born, is defined by Adam and Adam's sin. Death comes into the world, as we've talked about. Death goes upon all men because all have sinned. Everyone by nature is in Adam. Everyone by nature does the things that are wrong. These faithful saints, because they are in Christ, they are no longer defined by the ways of the world. This is described in Ephesians 2, and we'll look at this in a few weeks. They're no longer defined by their ethnic identity as well. There's a new thing that defines them. They are placed in a new reality. They are placed in Christ so that all of these things no longer define them and a new set of characteristics begins to define them. The faithful saints are now in Christ. And again, this, this phrase is used 34 times through the book of Ephesians, but I just went and picked a few at random. Instead of belonging to the ways of the world, these faithful saints are blessed in Christ, in Ephesians 1.3, and we'll look at that next week. These faithful saints are given new life with Christ. These faithful saints are forgiven in Christ. These faithful saints are given strength in Christ. They are placed in a new reality that defines them. It happens slowly. You know, as we are saved, there's, there's still some things of the world that kind of define us. But much like Joe went to Japan and slowly began to acclimate to this new culture, when we are placed in Christ, we slowly begin to change. We are no longer defined by the things of the world. We are defined by Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection, and the new life that brings. We are defined by Christ and Christ alone. And it's this reality that really ties together the book of Ephesians. The theme of Ephesians, there's, there's a few different themes that go throughout it, but the theme I really want to emphasize over the next few weeks is unity in Christ. The church is unified in Christ. Even though previously you know, there were Jews and Gentiles, even though previously there were all of these you know, different, different cults that people would worship. Some people would worship the emperor. Some people would worship Diana. Some people would do other things. They were now united in their worship of Christ. And the first half of the book of Ephesians talks through the reality, talks through the, um, the reality of being in Christ, the indicative that that is. It's a statement of fact about where Christians are because of Jesus Christ. The second half of this book Chapters 4 through 6 talks about the responsibility of living in Christ. So the first half talks about the reality, and the second half talks about what that looks like. 
But the overall theme is how we are all united in Christ. And so the question I want to leave us with this morning, if everything else has been maybe a little over our heads, let's focus in right here. The question I have this morning, are you in Christ? There's a few different words we have for this. Some people may say, are you saved? Have you been born again? Are you a Christian? Have you trusted Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Whatever word you want to use for it, there's a lot of different aspects of this. But I ask you, are you in Christ? But just coming to church on a Sunday morning, just confessing the Apostles' Creed is not enough to make you in Christ. That's sort of the difference between say, knowing a lot of facts about Japan, a lot of facts about a foreign country, and actually going there and having your life changed by it. The question is, have you trusted Christ for your salvation? Have you repented of your sins? Are you in Christ, or are you still in the world? Are you in Christ, or are you still defined by Adam's sin? Because as we go through this book, It's not addressed to those who are in the world. It's not addressed to those who are maybe just kind of, you know, doing this thing, uh, maybe casually, their parents were Christians, so now they're Christians. It's not addressed to any of those people. It's addressed to people whose lives have been changed, who have been placed in a new reality. So if you are not in Christ, this study won't mean much to you. You're going to learn a lot of facts about a reality. You're going to learn what it means to be in Christ, even though you haven't actually tasted that. And learning about it is not enough. You actually have to be in Christ. So the question is, are you in Christ? Have you trusted in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you repented of your sins and called on Jesus Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Because in him is the only salvation. Let's pray.